<laughs> thank you, Mom. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, wow. It's good to be back home, all right? I've been gone a few weeks, and uh, it is good to be back. <clears throat> About two months ago, my wife, Savannah, and I put our home up on the market just to see if it would sell and what we could get for it. And truthfully, this was more Savannah's idea than it was mine, but I decided to go along with it, thinking that it really wouldn't sell, and I would later go back to Savannah saying, I told you so. And so it was a very unfortunate day for me when about four days into our home being on the market, we officially accepted an offer for our house more than what we were asking for. And so since that time, we have been packing up our house and uh, have been preparing to move into a new home. Now, by a brief show of hands, anybody in here ever said, I just love moving? <laughs> yeah, nobody, right? Liar. All right, Wade, come on, man. <laughs> I mean, nobody has ever said that. It is a frustrating and a grueling process. It's time-consuming, right? And honestly, as, as time-consuming and as much of a struggle as it is at different times, uh, there is a sense of relief that kind of overcomes you whenever you get settled into your new house and things begin to take shape in different rooms and you unpack all the boxes and you move the furniture over, which we've been doing kind of little by little over uh, this past week or so. And in fact, the first night that Savannah and I spent uh, in our new home, we both kind of paused from unpacking and I said to her, I said, I just, I just love our new home. I was wrong. I love our new home. Now, you and I both know that there is a difference between a home and a house, right? I mean, a home is a place where you live. It's personal. It's the central location for your family, those whom you love most. But a house, on the other hand, is just a place. It's, it's just a physical structure full of walls and maybe a roof. I mean, there may be dozens of houses on your street, but for you, there's only one home. And for the past seven weeks here at Crossroads, we've been in a series called Rewired, where we've been looking at something in Scripture called God's kingdom. And, and one thing that we've learned in this series is that God's kingdom is here, but it's not really here yet. And so as citizens in this kingdom, in other words, we are a part of a place that is no longer our home. This world is just a temporary house. And, and so whether you see it or not, as followers of Jesus, we're in the midst of a move to a far greater place, a better home. But in the meantime, in this moving process, things break. In the, in the meantime, the moving process, it's a little bit frustrating and grueling. In fact, 2,000 years ago, there was a group of Christians who were just getting tired of this whole moving process. And so a writer in Scripture stepped foot in the middle of their circumstances to remind them to keep perspective. Here's what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 13. He said, for this world, let me just remind you, is not our permanent home. It's just a house. For we are looking forward to a home yet to come. Now, this is really important for us to capture before we look at Jesus' words today, because what the writer here is saying is that life in this world is going to be difficult. It's going to be painful at times. And so Jesus, when he preaches the most famous sermon that he ever communicated, the message that we've been looking at in this series, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And 2,000 years ago, he stood up on a hillside and it kind of represented the hallmark moment whenever God was making this greater kingdom accessible to everyone everywhere. Now, if you're a guest with us today and you want to know, well, what is God's kingdom all about? Here's the definition that we have been landing on each week. It is the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. 
Now again, what, what this definition is not saying is that if you choose to be a part of the kingdom, then your life will be guaranteed of no difficulty, that you'll never experience grief, you'll never experience pain. That's not at all what it is saying. No, sometimes following Jesus doesn't remove us from those situations. I mean, you can, it's totally possible to be following Jesus and feel trapped in a miserable marriage, right? I mean, it's totally possible to love and serve Christ, yet struggle with depression and anxiety. It's totally possible to do everything right as a parent, yet your child grow up to completely reject the truth of God's word. And so as we're going to see today, there are times in our life, in fact, we can guarantee it that this temporary house is just going to seem unbearable. Here's maybe a better way to say it. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't end well here. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, the key word in this phrase here, though, is, is obviously that word here. We're talking about this temporary house, not, not our forever home. And so keep that in perspective as we walk through Jesus' words today. If you have a Bible or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the Old Testament book of Malachi and uh, New Testament book of Mark. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's right on that table as you walked in a moment ago. That's our gift to you. Uh, feel free to take it home with you as you leave here today. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 5, picking up in, in verse 10. Now, as you're turning there, understand that the book of Matthew kind of serves as a biography uh, on the life of Jesus. And so what Matthew did throughout the course of Jesus' life was he recorded different things that he said, taught, and, and did, and how he interacted with people. And so this book kind of serves as an eyewitness account of, of Christ's life. And so again, where we'll pick up today is perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon. And the, the verse that we're going to pick up with represents the end of Jesus' introduction for this entire sermon. Scholars speculate that Jesus' sermon lasted possibly a day or two, all right? And so of all things that we've looked at in this series, the words that Jesus are about to speak to us right now in this moment were perhaps the most shocking of them all. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along. Pick up with me in verse 10. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I imagine that you could have heard a pin drop that day whenever Jesus said this for the very first time. Didn't Jesus want everyone everywhere to be a part of this greater kingdom? I mean, shouldn't this... Message has at least been in the footnotes or in the fine print and not the introduction. I mean, let's all be real for a moment. Jesus would have been far better off to have treated these people, to have treated this message more like a timeshare presentation. You know what I'm saying? Lock the door, tell people what they want to hear, and then bam, they're in. You know what I'm saying? And so what we're going to do today is look at Jesus' words and through the lens of a formula so that we can clearly see what the implications are for, for being a part of this greater kingdom, all right? And so the first part of the formula goes like this, according to what Jesus says, that citizenship in this kingdom equals distinction. Citizenship equals distinction. In other words, spending time with Jesus leads to a changed and transformed life that will naturally be made known by others. 
Now, to be blessed, according to what Jesus said, means to be uplifted, praised, to have more than, than favor, to be more than happy because of, here's the, here's the key phrase, because of who you are. You see, who we understand ourselves to be changes what we do. Oftentimes, we, we kind of get those things backwards. We think what we do shapes who we are. And, and this is why becoming a citizen in the kingdom of God is so much more than changing behavior or altering your habits. Our citizenship guarantees a new name, yet our distinction as children of God will only go as far as our ability to understand our God-given identity. And so every hurt, every habit, every hang-up that you have in your life isn't so much a behavior issue as it is really an identity issue. This is why we as men struggle to disconnect from our job in the evenings when we know that we're to be pouring into our families. Why? Because we've been trained to believe that what we do, our worth, our value is contingent upon what we produce, what we do, right? I know a lot of moms who walk around with this constant pressure to be the perfect parent. This is why every mess up, every bad report card, every call from the principal's office maybe makes you feel as if you are a failure as a parent. But listen, a change-restored life only happens when understanding the identity shift that occurs when resting our lives securely in Jesus Christ. One of my new favorite worship songs out right now is called Death Was Arrested, and there's a line in that song that goes like this, my orphaned heart has been given a new name. And you see, that's what citizenship in God's kingdom is all about. Jesus' closest friend, John, said it like this to a group of believers 2,000 years ago. He said, let me just remind you, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, John says. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Jesus. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as Jesus, he is pure. Now, because we're a part of a family whose home is not in this world, but it is in a place yet to come, the Bible says that in the midst of this life, we're kind of like aliens, we're like foreigners, all right? Now, I've said on many different occasions that my dad's side of the family is from Cuba, and, and I just love to poke fun of the sensitivity that a lot of you have towards that. Um, a true story, about three months ago, my mom and dad attended worship here on, I think it was this hour, 1045, and I was talking after service with many of you up here, and, and my mom and dad were just waiting for me in the back when all of a sudden someone went up to them, approached them, and, and said, hey, can I help you with something? Well, my dad quickly said, oh, no, thank you, we're, we're Patrick's mom and dad, we're just waiting for him to finish up. And the person who was standing right before them said, huh, you don't really look Mexican, I couldn't believe he said it. I mean, Todd should have really known better. <laughs> now, we all know that if you aren't from Evansville, you might talk a little bit differently. You might carry yourself a little bit differently. You might have different habits. Why? Because we have our own little culture here. I'll never forget moving here for the first time three years ago from Dallas. All I heard about was this local nut club, and I had no idea what it was about. And, and so I just assumed that it was a gathering full of UK fans, all right? <laughs> but you know what? You kind of encounter those kind of things when you aren't from a place, right? You, you stick out. And so we need to remember that if we've been adopted by Jesus, 
A question I want to put before you is, do the people around you know by how you live that this world is not your home? Do you live like a son or a daughter who has been cherished by the King Most High? Or does your lifestyle reflect more that of an orphan? Robert Hodgkins, a professor at the University of Chicago, said it like this. He said, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. You see, our distinction is why Jesus went on to say that as followers, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world in the midst of pervasive darkness in this temporary house. Now, it's no secret that racial tensions are really high in our country right now. Police officers who are seeking to selflessly protect our community feel very vulnerable when they're at work and their families feel just as vulnerable. And so no matter the politics, we need to remember first and foremost that we are called to represent the party of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of skin color or what kind of uniform is worn, can we all agree that all lives matter? Therefore, if, if you call Crossroads home, we, you know, we, we have a role in providing some solutions. And so in the next week or so, we're going to be identifying a night where we can gather together to, to pray and learn and understand more fully how to be alive. You know what the truth is? The problems that Jesus faced and encountered 2,000 years ago are no, are no different than they are today. It just looks differently. Therefore, our approach as a church needs to change, change with time. But you know what? Our message doesn't change. Our message will never change. Our message is timeless, but our methods have to be timely. And so, if you aren't connected to us through social media or email, we are going to notify you about uh, when this night will happen. And so, if you aren't connected to us through either of those outlets, go ahead and pull your smartphone out right now. Yes, I'm giving you permission to pull your phone out in church. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on uh, Twitter or Instagram. uh, Or we will send out a mass, and we will also send out a mass email to notify you of when this will occur. Um, If you haven't downloaded our app, this would be a great opportunity to do so. So it's called Crossroads Now. You can also receive information from us uh, that, way, that way. But you know, the Bible tells us to live in such a way in this world that even when outsiders talk poorly of us, that they will eventually be put to shame because of how we choose to live day in and day out. And so as Crossroads, as people of this church, let's be that kind of people in our community. And so if citizenship equals distinction, then the second part of our formula, according to what Jesus said, goes like this, that distinction equals persecution. Distinction equals persecution. I find it really interesting that Jesus specifies that we are blessed only when we're persecuted and opposed, catch this, for the right reason. Check out what he says in verses 10 and 11 again. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because of righteousness, not because of being a jerk. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I mean, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, you will be rewarded in your forever home only when you are opposed and faced hostility for standing up for me. But you know what? I'm not going to really reward you if you do or say something stupid. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes adversity is our fault, right? 
A couple months ago, I was asked to do the opening prayer at a uh, lunch function in downtown Evansville with some local leaders, and, and so as I was on my way, I was, of course, running late. I was speeding down the Lloyd Expressway, and I get to the convention center, and there's no place to park, and, and so I did what probably a lot of you would have done in that situation. I went across the street and found a bunch of opening parking places at the police department, and... Uh, <laughs> And so I thought, I'm running late, this is just going to have to do. But right in front of that parking spot was a sign that says, temporary parking only, 30-minute limit. I thought, who's really keeping track of the amount of time that I'm parking here, right? And so I parked there anyway. I went in and had lunch. And a couple hours later, I walked out to my car, really surprised to see that apparently we pay some city officials to keep track of how long people do park in those parking places. Because I received a big, fat parking ticket that day. And and so this past week, I was talking to the lady on the phone, paying for this ticket, and evidently she's not a member of Crossroads. <laughs> or she's just not a really good Christian, well, either way. <laughs> now let me ask you something though, all right? Should you feel bad for me for getting a ticket? No, right? It's my fault. I mean, was I the victim in that circumstance? By no means, why? Because I was the idiot who parked in a knowingly restricted space, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is that he makes it perfectly clear. If you're going to be opposed, resisted, and persecuted, make sure it's for the right reason. Here's the thing. A distinctive life rooted in Christ can count on experiencing persecution. Now that word persecution is actually a hunter's term, and it means to be aggressively pursued, to, to hunt down. It's, it conveys this idea of being, uh, to, of being chased down, and a way that you know if you're being opposed or chased down for the right reason is our response, is your response. And so if you are bitter, if you are calloused or resentful, when people oppose you, when you experience hosp- hostility, you may be persecuted for the wrong reason. But if you're experiencing gladness, and you have joy and a good attitude about it, then Jesus said, hey, be encouraged because you know what? You can resonate with me. Check out what a guy named Peter said in response to some hostility some early believers were going through. First Peter chapter four, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Of course, I mean, you should have expected this. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't end well here. But rejoice, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of his name, because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now notice in verse 13 how Peter says that we are to participate in the sufferings of Christ. You see, Jesus suffered so that we may be rescued from the eternal consequences of our sin. He died so that we could live. Now if we choose to accept this gift of citizenship, realize that it's totally free. I mean, there's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't deserve it. But it will cost you everything. I mean, you can count on being opposed, disliked, defriended, demoted, and experience grief. Why? Because of your identity in Jesus. Here's what I'm learning. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't need me. It's not about me. It's not about you. Rather, what Peter is saying here in our text is this, that suffering for Christ enables us to identify with Christ. 
Persecution has this way of stripping us of this illusion in this world and reminding us that, that this world is only a temporary house. Therefore, when we encounter hostility, we begin tasting the extravagant love that Jesus displayed on our behalf. And so if you have ever felt shunned at family gatherings because you keep inviting siblings to church, if you've ever taken responsibility for something that you didn't do, if you've ever been put through a false trial where it was fixed from the beginning, been spat upon, stripped naked in front of a crowd, if you've ever had someone literally rip your flesh from your body, then had nails driven through your wrist and feet and left you for dead, then you know what Jesus says to you today in this moment? Me too. I know what that's like. You see, adversity can draw us closer to the one who paid our debt because his life was defined by the worst kind of pain and suffering and shame and injustice this world has ever witnessed. In his book, The Best Place to Work, author Ron Friedman suggests that one of the quickest ways you can form a genuine, lasting relationship with a coworker is to find a common struggle between the two of you. That seems a little bit odd, but he goes on to explain that, that your struggle makes you vulnerable, and when someone identifies with the thing that makes you experience vulnerability, a deep bond is then forged. Now think about it like this. Jesus was so familiar with adversity that he wasn't even out of diapers yet before his name was put on a hit list. That one person happened to be the most powerful man in all the world at the time, a guy named King Herod. He heard that another king had been born in a manger, and so what did he do? He went out and had all baby boys under the age of two slaughtered, hoping that Jesus would have been one of the baby boys. I love it how Pastor John Ortberg said, he said, there is something about this man, Jesus, that even as a baby boy caused people to choose where they stood with him. And so could it be that persecution is a chance to know Christ more completely? I mean, is it possible that he can give us a greater perspective of the costliness of his sacrifice and the brevity of, of this life? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and spy back in the 30s and 40s in Germany, and he's most known for opposing Hitler and, and his unfair treatment and uh, genocide that, that obviously Hitler was a part of. And eventually, the Nazis uh, had him killed. He, he's known as a martyr to this day. Well, a friend who was in uh, prison with Bonhoeffer uh, notes that whenever the prison guards came to get Bonhoeffer to hang him in the gallows on his last day, the last thing that Bonhoeffer said to his friend was, this is the end for me, but it's only the beginning of life. You see, Bonhoeffer knew that because of, because of Jesus, because he trusted in the one who crashed his own funeral, that the party was only getting started for him. He realized that this world is not his house, it's home, his home is yet to come. This actually leads to the third aspect of this formula found in Matthew chapter five. It goes like this, that persecution equals suffering. Persecution equals suffering. When we encounter persecution for the sake of God's kingdom, we not only have the confidence that Jesus endured it as well, but we're a part of a unique family that has a unique history of brothers and sisters going through the same thing. Take a look again at verse 12, what Jesus said. He said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the prophets that Jesus referenced here were men all the way back in the Old Testament, the front half of the Bible, that God had selected to speak against the idolatry, corruption, injustice, and moral decay in their society. 
Now, sometimes when the prophets confronted their culture, it was received well. The people repented and turned from their sin and back to God. But then there were other prophets who were rejected and killed because their message hit a little bit too close to home. Now, this is a good reminder for us that we can't always control how a message is received among those that we're trying to connect to Jesus. As a preacher, I'm constantly reminded of this uh, during my final weekend at my previous church down in Dallas, uh, I'll never forget, a lady came up to me and she said, you know, I don't remember a thing that you preached, but I hope you try harder at your next church. <laughs> that was so kind of her. <laughs> but you know, by Jesus referencing the prophets here among this largely Jewish audience, he adjusted the expectations of his hearers wanting to follow him. Jesus was saying, hey, look, life with me is not easy. It may not end well for you here. Sometimes following Jesus just results in a lot of turmoil. Now, because of your selfless generosity and how well so many of you show up here each and every week and give and serve and sacrifice your time and your money, we have an imprint all across the globe. It is a great thing to be a part of a church that is not just about here in Newburgh, but we have partners all over the globe. The kingdom of God is much bigger than what you may see and experience here on a weekend. Now, Habib is one of our partners over in North Africa, and this past month we learned that Habib was recently in a coffee shop sharing Jesus with a friend of his who was Muslim. Now, as Habib was talking about how Jesus is God's son, he came to earth to, to die for us, to absorb the punishment that we deserve so that we can receive forgiveness and be connected back to God, there were two men who were actually sitting at a table beside a Habib overhearing this conversation that he was having with this man the entire time. And so one of them got up from his table, went over to Habib and said, hey, I'm curious about this Jesus guy. I don't want to have the conversation here. I want it to be in a more private environment. Can you meet me outside here in just a moment? After Habib finished up with his friend, he, he went out and met the guy outside. And as he stepped foot out of the coffee shop, the other guy who was sitting at the table jumped Habib from behind. One of them pulled out a knife and attempted to stab him in the back. The other man just profusely beat him over and over again. The whole ploy was just a setup. One of the jihadists who, who was beating him up verbalized to his friend, hey, let's break his knees so that Habib can no longer tell anyone else about Christianity. Well, thankfully, there were four police officers nearby and, and who stopped them from doing any additional harm. Later, Habib had to appear in court to give testimony about his assault. He told us, I was very afraid about what would possibly happen in there because I knew that it would be a hostile environment and I would have to talk about my Christian faith in front of everyone. Well, much to Habib's surprise, when he showed up at the courthouse that day, he walked in the room and it overwhelmed him because there were over 70 people who were witnessing the trial take place. And so when it came for Habib to, to speak about the incident that the two men had, um, had done to him, he explained that, that he was a Christian and that was their motivation. The judge then stopped him and he asked him how that came to be. And so Habib used that as an opportunity to share with over 70 Muslims in the courtroom about the love and the peace and the patience of Christ that is available to everyone everywhere, regardless of your past. He told us, looking back, God knew what he was doing. If I hadn't gone, gotten beat up that day, all those people wouldn't have heard about Jesus. You see, there's something about the message of Christ that thrives in the midst of hostility. 
There was a Russian atheist, atheist, I can't pronounce his name, I tried to last night and totally botched it. He despised Christians, he, he was a friend and advisor to Joseph Stalin, but ironically, what he's most famous for, for saying is this. He said, Christianity is like a nail, the harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And here's the thing. If you can't already tell, Christianity in America is not increasing with popularity. I mean, the chances of you experiencing hostility because of you following Jesus is only going to increase over time. Yet Jesus reminded us of this in John chapter 16. He told his followers, hey, look, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, I'm going to win. Your home isn't even here to begin with. Now, if you examine the 2,000-year history of the church, some of the most significant advancements for Christ occurred in an intolerant culture where hope seemed to be lost. The future seemed bleak. It looked as if Jesus' movement was, not, was gonna stop and, and not be passed from one generation to the next. Yet it's precisely during those moments that we need to focus on where we're headed, who wins in the end, and learn to be in step with the power that we have been, that we have been made available to through the Holy Spirit. Jesus assured us of this power in the book of Acts when he told us, hey, when the heat is turned up, when the pressure is on, I'm going to give my spirit to come upon you and give you some supernatural power to keep going. What's interesting is that one of the most common adjectives to describe the Holy Spirit in the original Greek manuscripts of Scripture goes all the way back to this word dunamos. It's kind of fun to say. Why don't you say it with me now? Dunamos. Come on. You can do better than that. Dunamos. Dunamos. Now, this word conveys such supernatural, unordinary power that it's actually the word that we get the word dynamite from. Therefore, when our problems seem big, when our circumstances seem to be defeating and stacked against us, when our culture seems to be so lost and desperate, it's a good thing to be reminded of the dunamis that Jesus has promised to give us through the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of the church's relationship with persecution like that of a kite, now, if you've ever put together a kite before in the confines of your home, you put it together and it just kind of lays there on the table a little bit dead. It's not until you take the kite outside and when it's really windy out that the kite does what it was intended to do, that it begins to flourish and fly, right? Now, if you think about it, the wind itself can do a lot of damage. It can blow a tree over. It can pull shingles off your roof. It could even damage the kite, but just enough wind in itself can make that kite thrive. Therefore, as a church, we have a unique opportunity to soar as the winds pick up in our culture. I mean, we can look at the eroding moral values of America and be really discouraged. We can read about the most recent barbaric attacks from ISIS and be scared. We can learn about the tri-state's meth problem, depression rate, and how sex trafficking is just tarnishing lives. And we can just shake our heads and think we, we're, we're defeated, we're done. I mean, let's be honest, there is a lot to be discouraged about right now. I mean, it's as if darkness seems to be winning, doesn't it? But we need to be remember, we need to, we need to be reminded that the power in us is far greater than the power that is before us. You see, the same God who spoke this earth into existence, the same God who placed the stars in its place and knows the amount of hairs on your head, and for me, it's getting less and less each day, the same God who promises to ride to the final battle on a white horse and slay Satan and his demons all at one time is the same God that this church has been built upon for the past five decades. And he's the same God who's going to continue to, to be who we run after and focus on when life is just hard. 
And so let's boldly share our faith with our neighbors, sharing with them what, what Christ has done on our behalf without the fear of rejection. Let's maintain our convictions about the truth of God's word even when a government tries to suppress it or redefine it. Let's fearlessly love everyone everywhere even when it's not reciprocated. Our lost friends are not the enemy. Our culture is not the enemy. Instead, they are the victim of the enemy. Now, until the complete restoration of all things is complete, here's where our formula for this life in God's kingdom leads us to. It goes like this, that, that suffering equals citizenship. Suffering equals citizenship. Jesus, Jesus promised it. This is why on occasion he, he would turn to the masses, he would turn to the crowds and say, hey, look, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, then, then come and talk with me. I mean, if you think about it, shouldering a cross is really painful. It guarantees a lot of discomfort. And you know, God's been teaching me a lot lately. As I wrote this message I, past week, I, I just had to be honest and think, man, I, I'm not really suffering too much for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. I mean, I could argue a few things, but it's really not that big of a deal. And so I began asking myself this question, and, and here's what it means for me personally. It goes like this. If I'm not suffering for Christ, are there some ways that I'm not living for Christ? doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not living for Christ, but it's just a good question to ask ourselves from time to time to diagnose where we are. And for me, I'm asking myself, do I care more about what people think about me than what God has impressed upon me to do? Do I spend most of my time and energy pouring into things that matter here but maybe don't matter in our real home? I'm learning that sometimes my biggest obstacle in this world is my need for approval from others. And yet here's where you and I need to rest in today. God the Father is patient with us when our lives lack the kind of distinction that attracts opposition from the outside. It's not about what we do, but it's about what's been done. You see, Jesus Christ willingly substituted himself for our brokenness, for our inconsistencies. Every one of us in this room, Jesus', Jesus death informs us that we can be loved, we can be adopted, we can be cleansed and purified. And you see, Christ did this not by demanding our blood, which would have seemed rational, but he did this by giving his blood. Last week I was at a conference in California and a friend of mine named Jeff uh, preached one of the main sessions and he talked about how he had recently uh, had been a part, had attended a church over in the Middle East. It's actually the largest church in the Middle East. They meet in a cave outside of the city of Cairo uh, over in Egypt. It's a massive church. Thousands of people gather there each and every week. And, and Jeff said that many of these believers have been tortured, have been abused, have been imposed. Some of them have been beheaded. Some of their families have been ripped apart, all for the sake and purpose of denouncing the name of Jesus. Jeff said, but when you show up there, there seems to be a gladness and joy about these people that just doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's as if they know that this place is temporary and they are looking forward to their home ahead. And so you might ask yourself, well, what, what do they do? I mean, how do they be reminded that this place is tough, but it's temporary? He said, one of the things that they do, the pastor gets up on stage each and every week and he signals for, for one half of the audience, he points to him and they know what that means. They, they all at one time yell, Yeshua, which means Jesus. And then he points to the other side of the congregation and, he's, and they all yell, come. And so all at one time, thousands of our brothers and sisters there in a cave in Cairo, Egypt, are yelling at the beginning of their gatherings, Yeshua, come, Yeshua, 
come. And you see, that's their way of keeping their focus on Jesus and inviting Jesus in their circumstances so that they can keep going. And it's also their way of reminding themselves that the best is yet to come, that this place is temporary. I don't know what kind of week you had. I don't know what your world looks like. I don't know what kind of adversity you may face this week. But I do know that we need to be reminded that Jesus wins and that we need him and we need to cling to him and we need to keep our eyes upon him. And so I just want to do something a little bit differently in here. Sorry if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. I want us to go ahead and stand up and and I want us to do what our brothers and sisters over in the Middle East do when they gather. And we are going to yell, Yeshua, come. And and we're going to divide it up in here, this side of the room right here. And if you're you're worshiping with us in the chapel, uh, just translate that into your uh, environment as well. You guys yell, Yeshua. Again, it means Jesus. And you guys yell, come. And we're just going to do this a couple times then we're going to go into worship and singing about our God who is stronger, who is mighty, and who promises to take care of us even when our world seems to be crashing down. And so let's, let's do this together. Let's say it like we mean it, all right? Let's go right here. Yeshua, come. Yeshua, come. Yeshua, come. One more time. Yeshua, come. Let me pray, all right? Absolutely. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we come before you as your people, as your family, and we are grateful that you have adopted us, that you have cleansed us, that you have purified us. And God, we know that being a citizen in this kingdom guarantees difficulty, but help us to keep our eyes on you. And we ask that in our culture, in our world, even in our own, our own homes and lives, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you help us to keep our focus on you? Would you remind us that there's nothing that we've gone through that you haven't already endured yourself and, and you promise to, to not exempt us from those moments, but you do promise to, to be with us and to give us just enough grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are stronger, that you are mightier, that you are greater than whatever we may face. For it's in your name that we pray and gather and worship. Amen. Hi, I'm Andy. Here's a few things that are coming up here at Crossroads. Crossroads is dedicated to building up leaders in the community and having a positive influence in the world we live in. That's why we have partnered with Tri-State Leaders of Evansville to bring the Global Leadership Summit here. This two-day conference is packed with leaders that will teach us how to be successful in our businesses and lives. The Global Leadership Summit is August 11th and 12th, and we at Crossroads have special pricing for our church family. Just go to cccgo.com events to find more details about what speakers are attending and to sign up with the Crossroads discount. We're a few weeks away from our fall kickoff and there are lots of changes that are happening and we don't want you to miss out on. Grade promotions will start the weekend of August 13th and 14th. So if your child is going from eighth grade to ninth grade, they will be able to be a part of the high school services and events starting on August 13th and 14th. Middle school services are also going to change. Middle school will only have services on Sundays at both normal Sunday times, 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. in room 222. This means there will be no middle school services on Sunday nights. High school students have some changes as well. They are moving their services from Sunday nights to Wednesday nights from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. The first service in the new time for the high school will be Wednesday, August 17th. We were excited to share with you some updates that are happening on our Newburgh campus. We are in the midst of two major construction projects that will help us grow as a church. 
To help keep everyone up to date, we will periodically share with you things you may want to know. One of our projects is an expansion that's taking place on the southeast corner of the building. This will provide with over 10 brand new classrooms that will be used heavily during our weekend services. This addition is just one phase of a plan needed in order to add the second story addition in the future. Our other project is the preparation of the land for the Evansville Christian High School. They are moving a lot of dirt to get everything level and then we'll begin adding piers for the building. As construction happens, we will bring you updates along the way. For more information on these events and the many others that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check out your bulletin or go online to cccgo.com.